And so I'm going to share with you this morning a sermon on giving, giving that impresses God. And we're going to do this from a story in Luke chapter 21. You know, when I was with you a few weeks ago, sharing the story of the school in Jackson, Mississippi, part of that part of that story was of a donor that gave millions of dollars to that school. And, and sometimes when we hear of that kind of giving, it can almost be demotivating because we say, well, we're not in that league and, uh, you know, we can never attain that sort of thing. But this particular story that we're going to look at this morning actually takes the opposite approach. It goes to the complete other extreme. And it talks about a woman, a widow, who just gave a small amount of money uh, to the Lord. And the remarkable thing about this story is that I think that of all the things that, that Jesus taught about money, all that we're told in the, in the Bible, and someone who had time to do this sat down and, and made a chart of all the topics that Jesus talked on and the frequency in which he talked about topics, and money was number one. That's one of the things that I always feel a little awkward about, that because I feel awkward sometimes as a pastor preaching about giving, I feel like I'm also letting my congregation not hear one of the main messages of Jesus. He talked about it. Uh, someone has said one out of every six messages that he gave, he talked, about, he talked about money in one sense or another. Well, this story in Luke 21 is a story of Jesus uh, addressing the issue of money. And this story, even though it's only four short verses, seems to capture almost everything that you need to know about giving. It's just really remarkable the way that it, the way that it plays out. But let me read you that story from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. It says, as he looked up, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And he said, I tell you the truth. The poor this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on put in all that she had to live on. I want you to see three lessons from this passage this morning. We're going to just jump right into them. And the first lesson is this, that giving is between you and God. Okay, giving is between you and God. That's something that we might overlook just as we, uh, as we sweep into this story. The context of the story is that it's the Passion Week. It's after Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the crowds were adoring him on Palm Sunday, uh, the same crowds that by the end of the week would be calling for him to be crucified. And in between, there's all this interaction that goes on between Jesus and religious leaders, frankly, in, in that, during that week. There's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of debates. Jesus spends a lot of time at the temple because the temple is the focal point for the whole Passover celebration, which is what is going on that particular week. And the temple was a very large area. It could literally hold thousands of people uh, in, inside the temple grounds. Uh, not all of them had access to every part of the temple, but the grounds were, were very large. And Jesus found himself one day sitting where people would put their donations for the temple treasury. 
into some container. I don't know if it was a box, if it was a basket like we have, or just what, what it was uh, that they put this into. But he noticed that the rich were throwing all kinds of money into that. And then this widow comes and just puts in a couple of small coins. That's the, that's the process. And so for those of you who've been in church for a long time, uh, and, and maybe grew up in church years and years, decades ago, you, you may wonder, well, why don't we pass an offering basket here on, on Sunday mornings? And way back at the beginning of Harbor, most of the sites back then just decided we weren't going to do that. We were going to do this thing where we had a basket or a box is what we usually had. We had a box that, that had a slot in the top of it that we put in the back of the room and encouraged people to give that way. And when people would act as if we'd broken like the 11th commandment by not having an offering, we'd say, well, you know, the only story that we have of offering is this story in Luke 21, where they gave in a box, you know, they gave in some kind of container. And so we, we did it that way. And the Uptown congregation, I remember that we had that long, uh, the long sanctuary at Grace uh, Lutheran, and we had the box way in the back. And I remember that there was one Sunday evening when I can't remember Chad if if you had to run after the guy or or what but someone came in swiped the box and took off and it was just like a small bread box kind of kind of thing that we had it had a little slot in the top and and they took off running and and uh, a, a few blocks down the street Chad found the box it was all cracked open there were checks flying around no cash was left and and we brought it back in and, and tried to mend it I think we probably had to buy another one to replace it but from that point forward we put the box in the front we didn't put it in the back and we put it in the front like right between where the stage was and the fellowship the entrance into the fellowship hall and we said well people all the time are going through there so we'll make it very easy but that was uh whenever I thought about that and I read this first I think about uh, the way that they gave in those days is very similar to that, very similar to what we do when we say there's a basket in the back that you can give your offerings. And Jesus was sitting there, and he saw this. He saw this. He saw what, what the rich were giving. He saw what this, what this widow gave. He knew, and friends, today God knows. God knows what you give. And giving really is between you and God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says there, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When I read that verse, I'm, I'm just reminded of the fact that, um, that giving is something that we really ought to put thought into. I think there's a lot, a lot of us that feel like the way to give is just to give spontaneously when we, when we hear of things that happen, and that's certainly good. But what Paul is envisioning here is that you've actually taken some time to consider what you have. And you've had that conversation with God. And you've determined in your heart what you're going to give. And Paul says, give that amount. Not, not under compulsion, not reluctantly, but give with a cheerful. And the word is actually hilarious. Give with a hilarious heart uh, as, as you give. And so... Uh, giving is between you and God, and you have to ask yourself, have I had that heart-to-heart -heart conversation with God about, about giving? Uh, is that something that I've done intentionally, or is it something that, that just is sporadic in my life? 
Giving is between you and God. I think the second thing that, that jumps out from this passage is the simple truth that God is not impressed with large sums. God is not impressed with large sums. Uh, that certainly may be how we describe ourselves, that we're impressed with large sums, but God isn't. Uh, the contribution of the rich, it's done in a way that uh, seems to be rather proud. Uh, but it's insignificant that the amount isn't even mentioned. They, Jesus tells us what the woman gave, the two small coins, the lepta. But he doesn't say what the wealthy gave. He says they just threw money into the temple treasury. It's so easy for us to look up to people that can give large sums uh, and look down upon people who can't. But what this passage teaches us, one of, the, one of the very clear things, is that God is not impressed with large sums. The contribution of this widow, it says that there were two small coins that she put into the offering that day. They're, they're lepta coins. They represented the least, the, the smallest denomination of coin that they had in those days. And when Jesus says a little bit later that this woman gave all that she had to live on, she had two lepta. And, and people have wondered, is he being, is that hyperbole there? Or is he really saying that's all that she had to live on? And I think it's the latter. And commentators who have looked at this passage suggest that there's evidence that tells us that that was kind of a minimum amount that you could give. And in the tradition of the Jewish people in that day, to give one lepta, was to insult God. The minimum amount you could give was two lepta. And so as this woman came to the temple treasury that morning with two lepta in her hand, she was faced with this one question. Do I give it all or do I keep it all? To give half of what she had, which would have been a tremendous sacrifice, wouldn't meet the minimum. And so she put them both in the, into the offering. And Jesus said, she's given far more than the, than the wealthy because she's given all that she had to live on. You know, our tendency, again, is to, as I said, to be impressed with large sums that are given. Those are the, those are, that's the news that, that we see in the papers of big philanthropists giving large amounts of money to this organization or to that organization, and we tend to be impressed with that, and we despise small gifts. And I have to admit that I found myself so often in that, in that category myself, even as a pastor. Back in those days, early days of Harbor, one of my jobs was to process all the offerings that, that came in. We had this incredible system because as we, as we had more and more sites that we uh, multiplied over those years, we had to have a collection uh, operation on, on Sunday or Monday to get all those funds into our central office a few blocks away from here on Monday morning so I could come in and count all the money and, and get the money uh, deposited. Uh, Chad's dad was one of the ones who drove around and collected all the money and it was, it was elaborate. I can't even remember all that we had to go through to get the money in but every Monday morning I would come in and there'd be all this, all the money from the five, six different sites of harbor that would come in and it was my job to keep it all all straight and get the deposit uh, just right. And one Sunday I remember um, coming in and when I opened up 
all of the offerings, I found <clears throat> this one baggie in there that had all kinds of coins in it. And my first reaction was, wow, this is really cute. You know, some, some parent helped their kid break the piggy bank, and the kid put the money in a baggie and sent it in to the church. And I, was, I just was kind of smiling the whole time I was counting it. And it was 2 or $3 or something like that and some change. And uh, I took it into the bank, and the teller was there. And I said, yeah, this, someone broke their piggy bank this week. You know, we kind of had a little chuckle over that and went back. The second week, uh, there was another baggie in the offering. And I was going, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. And third week, another baggie. Fourth week, another baggie with small coins, small amount of coins. And it started to annoy me. <laughs> and it annoyed me for, for a couple of reasons, which are, are not even worthy of being annoyed. I mean, one of them was that uh, it was never enough of any one coin to roll it. You know, I, I, I got the rolls, you know, the 50 cent pennies, the $5 dimes, the $2 nickels, but it was never enough of one coin to roll it. So every time I had to carry it in, unroll, uh, I had to walk the deposit about four blocks downtown to the bank. And, and if it was all a normal deposit where it was just checks and cash, I could kind of hide that in my, in, my, in my back pocket or in a notebook or whatever and be inconspicuous. But with this baggie full of coins, I had this bulging bank bag that I was carrying four blocks downtown to the bank. And I just felt like I was a target the whole way. My, my head was on a swivel the whole time, waiting for someone to grab the bank bag away from me. And, and frankly, after a while, uh, when I went in uh, and would take the bag up to the teller, I swear I could see her roll her eyes because she was saying, oh, this is the one with the baggie with the coins, you know. And, and, and so the whole thing was just kind of annoying to me. But as I read this text, I realized I had no clue what was going on. I had no right to judge that. And yet, that's just our tendency to think of small gifts as being inconsequential and large gifts as being impressive. God says that's not how it is. God is not impressed with large sums, but the third point this morning is that God is impressed with large sacrifice. He is impressed with large sacrifice. He says that the rich, their contribution, he says it came out of their excess. In other words, they gave backwards. In the Old Testament, there was this concept of what was called first fruits giving. And in agrarian society, the way it would work is that you would have your fields full of whatever grain or, or crop that you were growing. And if, you're, if you had 10 acres of, of land and you grew that crop, uh, they were required to tithe, which was to give a tenth of, of their crop. And God would ask them to give the first tenth. So the, the first fruits giving was giving away what you first got and giving it back to the Lord. What the rich were doing in this parable is just kind of the opposite. They, they sort of determined in advance what their lifestyle choices were. And if there was money left over at the end, they would, they would give it. And, and often it was a large sum of money. But other times, if it wasn't a large sum, well, then we weren't able to give because they were giving, he says, out of their, out of their excess, uh, not out of their first fruits. I remember reading the story years ago about <clears throat> Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. They, they came up with what they called a billionaire's challenge. And it was, a, it was an event where they invited billionaires 
to a to a, a retreat to talk to them about this this challenge. I didn't get an invite to that. I don't know if any of you did. I didn't get an invite to it, but I read about it later on. Uh, and and at that at that retreat, uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett challenged these billionaires to give away half of their wealth to philanthropic causes. And they told incredible stories about people who took that pledge and determined that they were going to give away half of their money uh, to charitable causes that would help people around the globe. But Warren Buffett also ran into some resistance from people that weren't willing to give away, billionaires who weren't willing to give away half of their money. And I remember watching an interview with him on this topic on 60 Minutes where he said, I got so tired of listening to the stories that I realized that I needed to write a book. And the title of the book would be How to Survive on $500 Million. <laughs> because he said, apparently, there's a bunch of people that don't think it's possible, you know. Too often, we fall into that trap of setting our standard of living before we think about giving. That's giving as the rich did here, giving out of their excess. But the contribution of the widow, on the other hand, reflected three cardinal virtues of, of Christian faith. When, when we think about the three things that we're called to have in our, in our lives as Christians, um, even in the text in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul mentions these. It's faith, it's hope, and it's love. Her contribution modeled all three of those things. First of all, faith. It modeled faith in God's ability to meet her needs. It says there that she gave all that she had to live on. Um, I think that the hardest time that we have in giving is when we have little, frankly. We're, we, we think that if we only have little, then we, we really can't give. I can remember back to our first year of marriage when we were um, still students, and um, I'd actually set up a situation by buying a mobile home and putting it on property where our monthly budget was $200. I mean, that's our monthly, but not our giving budget. Our monthly budget was $200. And so, you know, we would have wanted to give somewhere around $20 of that. And that was a, a really hard check to give in those days. I was talking to one of the guys I coached this week, and he was talking about preparing a budget for their church. And he was getting some pushback from one of his leaders who didn't think that they should be giving money away. And I always had a policy with every church I was involved with that we're going to take 10% of our offerings and we're going to give them to someone outside of our church, either missionaries or agencies that are doing good in our community. We're going to do that because it models what God wants us to do as individuals, uh, to give and, and to make that a priority. We're not going to cut back on that. And, and, I, and I've told guys who are just starting out and they gulp when I, when I say you need to figure out what you want to give. I don't know if 10% is the right figure, but figure out what you want to give and make that a priority. And they gulp and they say, well, I don't know if I can do that. And I, and I just say, hey, this is, uh, it, it's going to be the hardest time to do it. But if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. Because we always, we always think, well, there'll come a day when I can when I can give what I should give. But for right now, I can't do that. And I say, no, as a church, that's not how it works. If you don't give from the beginning, you're never going to give. And I would challenge you as individuals, if, you, if you're thinking that there'll be some day when you can give, 
um, chances are that that day is going to extend out longer and longer and longer if it ever comes. God says here by example of this woman that uh, giving is a matter of, of our faith. And there's even a passage in the Old Testament where God was frustrated, upset with the people of Israel for holding back on, on the tithes that he had demanded for them to give so that the priests who, who tended the temple uh, could have a way to make a living. And in Malachi 3 verse 10, God comes down on them and he actually says in that verse, test me. He says, test me and see if this isn't true. See if you can outgive me. And if you give, test me to see if I'm not going to give you back far more than you've ever given to me. God is wanting our faith to be stretched as we give. And when we give, it expresses our, our trust in God's ability to meet our needs. Secondly, that it demonstrated for this widow her hope, that her hope was not in this life, but it was in the reality of heaven and its rewards. She saw that more clearly than she saw anything else. So, so often we, we ask that question, what's in it for me? And you can hear any number of people that will tell you, if you give me this, you'll get this back from God. And that kind of penny slot thing is not what the Bible really teaches. God does say to test him in Malachi 10. But the, the point is, as God says, when we give, what we receive back from the Lord is not always in kind. Uh, we, we find that the greatest thing that we receive is the placement of our heart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 <clears throat> that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I've often thought that what, what he's really saying there is if, if we want our hearts to be seeking first the kingdom of God, this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and those words of Jesus. If we want our heart to be there, We've got to put our money there. We have to put our treasure there because he says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to go. And for this lady, the hope, her hope was demonstrated that she really trusted in the reality of those future rewards. So faith and hope, but then finally, it demonstrated her love for God and not for money. You know, in that same context, Jesus actually calls he actually personifies money at one point. He tells the people he's speaking to, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. So he's talking about money as being a servant, a, a, a master that which we can fall into service to if we love money. He says, you can't do both. You can't serve both. There's a power that money has over us and, and the power of greed and materialism. In that day, uh, is probably even stronger in our day today. And the only way, friends, that I know how to drain that out of your soul is to give. Uh, and, and it's senseless. In one sense, you could say that this widow giving to a temple, uh, a, a, a temple set up there that was doomed to failure. I mean, that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, 30 or 40 years later. You could say, well, that was kind of a stupid thing for her to do with her money, but it expressed her heart, her heart of love for God. And you see, giving is not God's way of raising money. Ultimately, it's God's way of raising children. He wants us to give for what it does in our hearts. God loves cheerful givers. He loves hilarious givers. In the Old Testament, over and over again, whenever they were called upon to bring their offerings, it was often 
in the context of a feast that they would have. And, and there's almost this sense like, hey, yeah, we're going we're gonna to give the first fruits. We're going to give all this stuff in faith that everything's going to come in. But let's go have a feast right now and just kind of laugh at how, uh, how odd this feels, how senseless this feels. Um, but that's how God wanted them to give because it expressed their faith and their hope and their love for him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul actually talks there about a church in Macedonia that was just a model church for giving. And it wasn't because they were wealthy. In fact, the opposite is true. They had very little uh, to give and, and to live on. But he set them up as a model because of the way that they gave sacrificially. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, he says to the Corinthians, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, he says, see to it also that you excel in this grace of giving. Excel in the grace of giving. That's kind of an interesting way of putting it. There's all sorts of things that we might think it's good for us to try to achieve and to excel in. Excel in this, excel in that. Paul says, excel in the grace of giving. So let me ask you as we draw this to a close this morning, some questions that you can take home and answer for yourself because it's not something I'm going to ask you to turn in because giving is between you and God. But let me give you some questions that I think might be helpful for you as you have that conversation with God. The first would be this. What sacrifices do you have to make in your lifestyle to give what you give? What sacrifices do you have to make in your lifestyle to give what you give? You may give a large amount to Harbor City or somewhere else, maybe both. You may give a large amount, but if it's not a sacrifice for you, if it's not causing any sacrifice in your, in your lifestyle, then maybe it's less than what God wants you to give. You haven't heard me rail today at all about tithing. Uh, there's, there's two basic approaches to the concept of tithing. Tithing is, is that which God commanded in the Old Testament for the people of Israel in order really to fund the, the whole process of the temple and the sacrifices and the tabernacle and all those sorts of things. They were to give a tenth. That's what a tithe meant. And one of the questions that we often get into and, and ask is the question, is tithing commanded in the New Testament? And as I look at that particular issue, I, I've come to the conclusion myself that tithing is not, um, it's not commanded in the New Testament. And when I say that, most people are going, phew, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. But they don't listen to what I say next. Um, because what I say next is this, that when you come to the New Testament, there's a different standard that Jesus and Paul put out there. And it's not, it's not a tithe. It's a standard of sacrificial giving. And I usually say at that point, if everyone had to give 10% in the Old Testament and the New Testament says the standard now is sacrificial giving, do you really think that there's many cases where it would be less than that 10%? That's what I had to face one day. I was reading a story about a man who decided to do a reverse tithe. He had become blessed by God in such a way that, that he could do that. A reverse tithe is simply he gave away 90% of his, his money and lived on 10%, you know. And he was writing about that, and he said, what started me down that path 
was the realization that for me, the tithe was God's way, or the tithe was the rich man's way of getting out of giving. It was kind of the box that you could check. Yeah, I, here's, my, here's my bank deposits. Do the math, 10%, check. I got that one covered. But then you read the New Testament, and the standard isn't that 10% box. The standard is sacrificial giving, which throws it into a whole different category, doesn't it? It throws it into the category of struggle because we wonder at that point, well, maybe 10% isn't sacrificial for me. Maybe, maybe 15% isn't sacrificial. What is sacrificial? And it becomes this lifelong struggle that we have over what, what is the amount that God would really have me to give that would represent the faith, hope, and love that I have in God. And when people come to that conclusion, I go, yeah, that's, that's where we all need to be. This isn't a box you check off. This is something that becomes a lifelong struggle because the struggle is whether you're going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. What are the things in your life that you're living without because you give? What sacrifices do you make? Secondly, what does the amount that you give say about your faith in God's ability to meet your needs? What does the amount that you give say about your faith in God's ability to meet your needs? Does your giving force you in any way at all to be dependent upon God. Now, I realize there's a balance to be had there. I realize that's a tricky question, and it gets back to the struggle. We need to, we need to engage in that struggle. And some of you may say, well, why would I ever want to put myself in a position where I had to depend upon God? And as soon as those words come out, we're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. You know, we realize that's not how it's supposed to be. And I can't answer that question for you. I don't know where that line is for you, I've got to answer it for myself between me and God because giving's between me and God. I have to answer that question. I can't answer it for you. But when you ask me that question, why would I ever do that? I just say, well, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I think that's what Jesus is telling us this woman did in Luke 21. And that was giving that impressed God. So it's something we need to think about as we think about what we give and what we do with our money. The third question, what does the amount that you give say about your hope in heaven and its rewards? These Macedonians that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, it says that they gave beyond their ability because they were laying up treasure in heaven. And then finally, the fourth question is, what does the amount that you give say about your love for God? Because that's why we give. We don't give, as Paul says, under compulsion. We don't give reluctantly. God doesn't love that kind of giving. No matter how much you give, you can't get over that hump with God. If you're giving begrudgingly or under, under um, just because you feel like you have to, God says, That's, I don't want your reluctance. I want your giving to reflect your love for me. And that love for God always has to be at the beginning of the process for giving. And even before that is his love for us. Because in that same context in 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking about these Macedonians, he begins it by saying, for you know the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. 
He's defining rich and poverty in different ways there, isn't he? But it carries right over. And what Paul is saying is you first have to be affected by what God has done for you in Jesus. That Jesus left all those, all the comforts and, relig- and, and joy of heaven to come to earth, to become poor, so that we through his poverty might be rich. And once you're touched with that, Paul says, then you're in a place to give because you know that you've been given far more than you can give. So let me wrap up here this morning. I think there's, a, there's three responses that most people have to, to sermons on giving. The, the first response is what I call the so-and-so uh, response, which says, boy, I'm so glad so-and-so is here this morning. <laughs> or or uh, so-and-so needs to hear this. I'm going to link them to that one. As soon as I get home, I'm going to link them to this sermon because so-and-so needs to hear this message. And if that's, if that's where you find yourself this morning, you go home and listen to it again. <laughs> And pray that the Lord would reveal your heart to yourself because we all need to have that heart-to-heart conversation with the Lord. This isn't for anyone else. It's for each one of us who is here. Secondly, there's people who respond to this uh, in very, they're very frustrated. They're very hurt. They're discouraged because they've made choices in their lives that have left them in a place that they don't like. I don't know how many people that I have talked to over the years who have told me stories about how materialism has just kind of gripped their hearts and it started to grip their lifestyle. It started them down a road to debt and now they're in this place where they just hate the whole topic of money. Their credit cards are maxed out, and they they hate the fact that when they send in the minimum amount of $50 a month, the balance only goes down 10 bucks. They feel like they're forever enslaved in that. They say, "I I can't talk about this with my spouse because we just end up fighting over these things. And and invariably, they'll come to the point where they say, when I hear a sermon on giving, it tears me up because I'm embarrassed at what I give. I'm embarrassed that I find myself in this situation. And if that's where you are this morning as you hear these words, I just would want to first tell you to go to God and listen to the gospel. Don't feel the burden. Don't, Don't take this as a burden on you before you first go to God and say, God, you've given me so much. And confess to him where, where you've messed up along the way. And ask God to give you the strength and the resolve to move forward in a different way. And, and I always encourage people when they we come to that point in their lives to figure out whatever they're giving and just bump it up a little bit as an act of faith. I mean, it's, it may be difficult for you to do that because you find that with all these commitments that you've made and the, the place you've driven the car of your life into the cul-de-sac, Uh, you find that there's just hardly anything that you can give, and maybe it's only 1%, and that's fine. That's where you are. That's being honest. That's having the heart-to-heart. And if it's at 1%, maybe set a goal to make it 2. And as God frees you up to do that, maybe make it 3 at some point. But look look at how you would respond to God in faith and in hope and in love as this widow responded that day. I think we're always encouraged by, by stories of people that have, have done it right. And uh, I wanted to share 
a story this morning as, as we close, and it's a story about someone that <clears throat> most of you here know or knew far better than, than I did. And that's a woman by the name of Barbara Morrison. How many of you remember Barbara? Barbara was, you know, when I, um, when I began talking uh, at the beginning of this year about coming and being an a <clears throat> interim pastor here at Harbor City, one of the things I was looking forward to was reconnecting with Barbara and catching up with her and finding out more about what has gone on with her in the years since I was here last but I found out when I got here that Barbara had passed away, and she passed away last October, almost a year ago now. And Barbara was one of those kinds of individuals that uh, was larger than life, for me anyway. And I know everyone experiences people in, in different ways, but I doubt that, that there would be many of you here, if any, that wouldn't have a Barbara Morrison story, <laughs> okay? Uh, Barbara was just one of those kind of individuals, and the story that I have of Barbara, kind of the biggest one that I have, goes back 15 years ago to a service up in the Uptown Church. Barbara would always sit right down in, in front on the aisle. She had her little canister of oxygen that she toted around uh, there with her, and she sang as loud as she could, and she just praised the Lord and was very attentive and always encouraging to me. That was my relationship with Barbara back then. And there was one night when I had preached a sermon and I was standing off to the side having a conversation with someone without the corner of my eye, I saw Barbara approaching with her, with her canister. And it was kind of a, a narrow passage over there. So I, I kind of moved back and, and took the fellow I was talking to and moved him back a little bit so Barbara could go by. And I said something to Barbara on her way by and she said something back to me and she went on to head toward the fellowship hall. But out of the corner of my eye, I realized that she was stopping before she got to those doors. And as I looked at what was going on, what I saw was her reach in to her big bag that she always carried. And she pulled out this baggie with coins. And these boxes that we had, like I said, they were, they were really great for putting bills or checks. The slot was perfect, a few coins. If you were trying to squeeze a baggie full of coins into that slot, it was a job and a half to do that. And I just kind of sat, I stood there and I watched Barbara struggle for the better part of a minute to maneuver that baggie of coins down through that slot to get it into the box. And the longer she struggled, the more I, I just felt convicted in my own heart. And I had to dismiss myself from this conversation I was having and, and uh, do business with the Lord. And I'll tell you, from that, that point forward, every Monday morning when I came in to count the offering for the weekend, one of the first things I would do was grab the baggie and I would open it up, I'd count it, and I felt like counting that money, whether it was two, three, four dollars, whatever it was that particular week, probably was the most sacred thing I did every week. Because I was measuring out someone's sacrificial giving to the Lord. And that's the third category this morning, friends. There's the so-and-so category. There's 
the category where you just feel convicted, but there's also a category where you give beyond what you're able because you trust that God will meet your needs, whatever they are. And your hope is not in what you can amass in this life, but your hope is in heaven and its rewards. And I, and I thought about Barbara as I've, as I've thought about this passage this week and thought, do you think she ever regretted, she regrets for a moment what she did, what she gave? Absolutely not. Her only regret is she couldn't have given more at this point. But it also expresses love for God, that God's touched your heart in such a way that you want to, exp- to respond with that kind of love. And if that's where you are this morning, uh, I have nothing to offer you because you've already received it all from the Lord. And that is giving that impresses God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this passage, which shows that once again, you turn the values of the world upside down for your kingdom. And that you know our hearts, you know our lives, and what you ask of us is to be honest with ourselves and honest with you and take steps which demonstrate our faith and our hope and our love, even with our money. We thank you for your love for us, which is the foundation for all of this. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.